0: This Choircast podcast is brought to you by Ideas Digest.
1: In a world dominated by fake news and cancel culture.
0: Oh, sounding a little bit, you know, right-wing conservative. Fake news, cancel culture. So let's reframe. Fair.
1: In a world dominated by intolerance, bigotry, and ignorance, Mm, can we...
0: I think that might be going too far, left-wing progressive. Just keep going.
1: All right. The Ideas Digest podcast is all about exploring different viewpoints and challenging your own beliefs. In each episode, we flip a coin to determine which side of a controversial societal issue we will debate. We then compete to persuade someone to change their mind.
0: Insert montage here.
1: If it lands on heads...
0: You shouldn't be a fan of Jordan Peterson.
1: Trump is not guilty.
0: Coin flip. Tails. And I'm pro-porn, baby. Let
1: me take someone who wants to have kids and tell them why this is a bad idea. Yeah,
0: And then here comes along Andrew Tate.
1: Escape your echo chamber each week at Ideas Digest, everywhere you get your podcasts.
0: Western Christianity has spent the last 2,000 years telling everyone they're separated from God.
1: This
2: is Not Church with John and Nat Turney. All right. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Uh, My name is Nat, and I'm with my brother, John, as always. How does that, it, we were just talking offline about it. It's been almost three years of doing this. So I know. I think March I've will I, be every, three years. Pretty much introduced you the same way every time. Although I have, you know what I've stopped doing recently and yeah, I think I back in the habit is I haven't insulted you enough. Oh, that's true. That's I true. have not yeah. referred to you as my far less good looking older brother or the guy who's finally, you know what really makes me happy? And this is going to make you mad when I say this, but it does make me happy that you're finally starting to lose your hair. Because I started losing mine at 19. So screw you. You had like 30 more years of hair than me. You had it coming. All right. Anyway, none of this has anything to do with the podcast, by well, the way. Well, it's funny
0: because we have these cameras at work and there's a, a few of them that are above. And every <laughs> uh, once in a no. while, I have to go and look at cameras to look <laughs> up for certain things. And I'm like, yeah, who's did, that guy? Did nobody <laughs> feel the need to tell me that I have a huge baloney patch on the top of my head? I mean, come on.
2: Do you remember though? Okay, okay. This is, yes. uh, we're off track. But what I know the we are. Years, years ago now, we were traveling and uh, we were coming to California. So I live in Texas, John, and my whole, the rest of my whole family lives in California. So we made the long road trip to California. And along the way, my son at the time was probably 12 or 13. And my other son was probably nine. But we stopped at a rest area to let him get out and not go crazy. And we threw the football around. Now, this is back in the days of film cameras. so my wife was taking pictures of us playing football. And so two or three months, fast forward, we get, you know how it used to go, right? Eventually you get the film, the film right. developed. Eventually yep. you go to the photo mat or whatever. And I'm flipping through these pictures and I no joke, I literally said out loud, who's this dude playing football with my son? Who's this bald guy? <laughs> I had no idea how much hair I'd lost on the back. I always knew I was bald on the top, but I didn't realize how much hair I'd lost. On the, I looked like I got that Friar Tuck thing going. and I was like, <laughs> that was... That was a day I died a little on the inside. Yeah, it was like, and I had the same response, John. Why? Why did nobody tell me? And
0: you know, and like when I was younger, I was like, I won't care if I go bald, whatever. I d- I'll just shave my head. I do, <laughs> and I started looking at all the products that like a potentially could you know give me my hair back. And I was like, <laughs> I've become that guy.
2: Yeah, you're also the guy that signed me up for the hair club for men when I was 22. So I did. You know what? I did. All of this shit's coming back to haunt you. So hey, <laughs> all right, we could tell silly stories all day, but let's get on with the show. This is not church, by the way. This is the name of the podcast. Because if it was church, you'd be gone by now. And uh, John and I would have uh, left with you. Hopefully, we could meet up someplace, maybe a local bar and have a drink waffle together. Waffle out. Ooh, Waffle I don't have a Waffle House. I'm Neither so jealous. Neither do we. Neither oh. do we. It's the worst, but it's also the best. <laughs> it's the worst and the best. Waffle House is terrible. But I tell you what, if you've, been, if you've been drinking a little bit, something about greasy food and waffles sounds great. But we are joined on this podcast by a guy who is currently wondering what the hell he was thinking. And <laughs> <laughs> you can't see him. I can. I can see it in his eyes. He's like, holy mackerel. Nah, i just kidding. We are joined by Robert Hudson. Let me read a little bit about him and then we'll jump into a conversation. We'll talk about all kinds of good stuff. Uh, In the third grade, Robert knew that books would be his life reading them, writing them, and making them. He's been a teacher, a bookstore clerk, a journal editor, a translator, a book designer, a proofreader, a small press publisher, a writer, and he has certificates in bookbinding and hand printing. Robert was an editor at Zondervan for 30 plus years. He's best known as the author of the Christian Writer's Manual of Style and has authored 12 books in all. He's a member of the West Michigan Thomas Burton Society, the International Dante Society. And the, I should have asked you how to pronounce this, Traherne? Tra- the Thomas Traherne Association. Okay. Yeah. I, sometimes I, I look at a word and go, mm, I think I can do it. The <laughs> Thomas Trahern Association. And he serves on the board of the Calvin College Center for Faith and Writing. And that's what I have written down, John. And, this is uh, late, the latest book? Oh, the latest book is called The Beautiful Madness of Martin Bonham. Okay. Amazing. I can't wait to talk about that.
1: Welcome to the podcast. Robert, how are you, sir? Thank you. I'm doing fine. I appreciate you being on. What a joy.
2: Oh, man, we appreciate you. And uh, again, um, for whatever idiosyncrasies and weirdnesses ensue, I apologize ahead of time. (laughs) You're a bit quirky, and that's kind of how we roll. And me too. Uh, Good. I I can deal with quirky. Quirky's great. But hey, let's just jump off, if you don't mind. uh, A lot of times what we like to start off with is just a little bit of question about people's background with faith. And if you would like to share with us part of that journey, that would be great. Just to help us get to know you better a little bit.
1: That sounds good. I, was, uh, I have the good fortune not to be raised uh, in the church. My, my parents were very conservative. They left the uh, Methodist church when I was about four years old because they were starting to get too liberal. And they didn't go back to uh, church until they found a, I would kind of call it a Jerry Falwell church when I was in eighth grade. Yikes. And yeah, and uh, it was a very political <laughs> church. Uh, it was called Church on the County Line, which my my dear wife came to call the Church on the Party Line. Oh wow, yeah. And uh, they were my parents were good people, but uh, I became I probably became kind of personally convicted uh, about my faith in 1976, and all of a sudden I I, I found myself becoming this conservative person. I was reading. Chesterton and uh, Solzhenitsyn, and a lot of those people, which kind of C.S. Lewis, which kind of edged me in a right, rightward direction. And then I started having a lot of dissonance. Do you guys, uh, you know, you know what I mean when, when I say kind of dissonance in the church when you start Absolutely. exposing yourself to what's really going on? And uh, again, with the help of my wife, uh, really, really kind of saw another side of the faith and uh, became much more open. Um, She and I met actually in a very conservative Bible church, which we realized eventually was actually quite abusive. It was quite an abusive church. I won't say much more about it just for uh, libel's sake. Um, But it was quite abusive. And and we left and uh, pursued some. uh, We were at the friends meeting for a while uh, we ended up having friends. You were talking before, uh, John, about uh, having incredible discussions with people of other faiths. Our daughter, for instance, had a good friend uh, who was Sikh. And we would get together with her family and I had probably some of the best spiritual discussions I've had with this Sikh gentleman. Uh, you know, with his, with his turban and uh, just uh, long hair. And they were just such wonderful, wonderful people. And of course, we've known... Uh, Muslims. A good friend of mine is a is a Zen, a Buddhist Zen master guy, and it's just uh, he makes uh, handmade coffins. By the way, that's his profession. Interesting guy. Yeah,
2: but It'd anyway, so we, <laughs> you
1: know, I still kind of, I still kind of hang with the the Jesus identification. But I worked for 34 years at Zondervan and most of those books were pretty evangelical. Some were on the right spectrum, theologically and politically, some were on the left. And um, I really got nauseated by the evangelical jargon. In fact, I have a whole section on the uh, Christian, in the Christian Writer's Manual of Style about avoiding religious jargon. And I hope one thing... You will notice you 've noticed, and the readers will notice in the beautiful madness of Martin Bonham is that I want to talk about spiritual issues I want to talk about real things without using expressions like "God spoke to my heart" and those kinds of things you know so anyway trying to trying to come to a new language to talk about a spiritual reality which we can only really dimly see a tiny corner of, and that 's been fun that 's kind of what i 've been after, so that 's kind of where i am and in my spiritual journey, we're actually like uh, you. We are unchurched, so I'm going to have to start listening to your to your podcast more. Uh, we were most recently at a church uh, which actually had a gay pastoral staff, but then there was a huge blow up in the staff right before the pandemic. The church kind of fell apart and it's I think back together, but we haven't been back to see. Like I say, we were at friends meeting for a while and that was one of the best experiences, but our daughters were freaked out by silent worship. Yeah, I was
2: gonna say that's that's uh, Quaker, right? That's yeah, Quaker, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um I'm I'm drawn to, you know, I have been drawn to in some ways, at least at least the theology in a lot of ways of the Anabaptists, you know. So be they the uh of the friends variety or other, you know, other, other variations of that. Um, They're still very patriarchal, I think, in a lot of ways. It's still the thing, but they don't do a lot of, uh, they they got away from a lot of things that I was starting to bristle against. So things like violent atonement theories. Okay, well, they don't, most of them, I don't believe, adhere to any, you know, a lot of, a lot of the mainstream like penal substitutionary atonement. Um, There's certain things that, you know, certain uh, parts, certain sects that are completely either nonviolent or pacifist. So there's, there's things like that I can get behind. I know there's obviously there's a spectrum of beliefs within, within that thing, but I don't know. John and I, I, I speaking for both of us anyway, just the organization of church is what, you know, as you talked about becoming nauseated jargon and the things like that within the publishing world and within the church world, I started to bristle against the, the organization of it all and, and how it, it valued that organization to the exclusion of human beings. And so. You know, at some point you have to make a you have to draw a line in the sand, right?
1: Yeah. Well the other the other thing, I mean, just on that point, is we we got tired of what we called sermon church. Yeah, for sure. Where you would leave week by week, uh, you know, with some sort of exhortation that made you feel like you were never doing enough, that you were never a good enough person, uh, you know, you're not praying enough, you're not Spending enough on the missionary field, you're not doing this, you're not doing that. And that got really tiresome. And in a similar way at Zondervan, when I worked there, which I loved, I loved the people there. But I noticed that most of the authors that we edited, that we published, knew all the answers. And I got so tired of people knowing all the answers. And uh, John, I think you'll have noticed in the first chapter, that is one of my main points, I think, in chapter three is that, yeah, look for the answers. It's good to have, it's better to have the questions because that shows the deity, the holy one that you care. You want to know what's real, what's happening. Whereas I think it's better to do that than to assume you have all the answers when you don't. And I, I really got tired of editing writers that had all the answers.
0: Well, and that, and that brings us kind of to your book, right? Where I think the, the the big question, the overarching question of your book, is by the one of the characters, and I don't want to give. I I, I don't think I'm giving anything away because I think it's on the back of your book, right? That the one of the main characters comes to the other main character, being Martin, and saying, "I don't, I don't think I love God. I don't think I've ever loved God." not in the way the bible says that we're supposed to. And that's 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 the starting point of this book, right? This idea of do you do people really love God with all their heart, mind, soul all the time? You know, that's a really that's a really good question and I literally put the book down and and asked myself the question kind of like you you do through the book, you you ask a bunch of different people this question. You know, different people within the book. And I would have to, I would have to say no, that I don't. And then the question is why? Why don't I? And I think that's that's where the book takes us on this journey is to, and then into this idea of it's theophily, right? Is that how you say it?
1: Theophily, yeah, yeah.
0: And uh, is there anything that connects to you about this idea, or was this completely just an idea you had and you made up, or is this something? That would that you were going through some kind of not a crisis of faith. I don't. I don't honestly. I don't. I do look at it as a crisis of faith. I think it is. I think it is um, a very honest question to ask oneself about their connection with the divine.
1: Um, there were so many. I think one of the instigating points was I knew a lot of really brilliant, brilliant, theologically minded people at Zondervan. Some of the editors there were just. Just brilliant. I worked with one man, my boss actually, who who was a noted theologian, and his brother is an even more noted theologian. But being a humanities guy in my background, uh, literature and languages, I started having this idea that the poetry I was reading, and I'm talking about even Zen poetry and Sufi Muslim poetry, African uh, ceremonial poetry. They were teaching me as much about what it was to, to be a child of this universe, a child of this creator, that I wasn't getting really from theology. So I, I started with this idea that the humanities and the sciences can be ways to God that are as meaningful and deep as traditional theology uh, not to replace traditional theology. They can they can do what they like. I don't understand a lot of it. There were several times when I was asked to edit a book of theology at Zondervan, and I would look at it and say, I've got to send this to a freelancer because I cannot make head or tail of this language, getting us back to not just evangelical jargon, but theological jargon. So there was one Christmas in, uh, I think it was 2016, when I thought, you know, I'm going to suggest uh, to a magazine somewhere that I do a little article about theophily, about loving God through ways other than traditional Christian theology. You know, write uh, about what I learned from the Sufi Muslims, what I learned from the Zen poets, what I learned from the, the, the great uh, medieval mystic writers. And I would call it, you know, loving God theophily. That's the, the Greek term for loving God. And then I got to thinking, well, wouldn't it be cool if there was a, a college like that that taught theophily instead of theology, mm-hmm. where all the teachers in all the different departments that had any spiritual leanings could get together and teach about mm-hmm. their disciplines and what their disciplines taught them about the nature of reality, spiritual reality, and, and the divine. And then, of course, the next step was, oh, I'm going to create my own. I'm going to write this novel about a college, Cupperton College, uh, Cuperton University, where a disgruntled Gen X seminarian and an English professor both reach this crisis that they don't know what it even means to love God with your whole mind, strength, soul, and heart. And uh, so they get together and they fight with the university and they end up creating this department of theophily which, of course, upsets the Department of Theology. And yeah. that's where the fun starts. They have <laughs> start playing the most unchristian, uh, unkind tricks on each other to kind of undercut each other's discipline. And that's where the fun of the book comes in. I make this all sound so serious. And, and my point of the book was really to, to make people laugh while they did think about some of these issues at the same time. There's,
2: there's enough in all of that world that's, that's plenty absurd. Yeah, <laughs> it's easy to poke fun at, right? Right. So, and and the fun really only starts when people who take themselves too seriously just get really offended. So right. That's great. I, I'm with you actually on, on on so far every point, but I, I I resonate a lot with the idea that certainty bothers me. You know, especially certainty in others, um, which usually exposes whatever certainties I'm clinging on to as well. But but I find myself more. That's why I was drawn. That's why I'm drawn to people like Merton. And Henry Now and that's why I'm drawn to people like Father Richard Rohr and those the, those who are sort of carrying on that mystic co- contemplative tradition of saying the job of human beings is not to is not to apprehend everything necessarily it is to wrestle and grapple and, and explore and wonder and so so much of what's missing from evangelical theology is any sense of wonder because it's all built and predicated upon a certainty and a concreteness that you can know that you know that you know you know I hate that phrase, by the way, that needs to go out of, you know, speaking of Christian jargon, you can know that, you know, that, you know, that, you know, I'm like, I've never heard that one. (laughs) Oh, I, I grew up in a, with a very particular style of preaching. I've said, I've preached it myself, you know, (laughs) so I like that. First of all, if if we haven't made it clear, the book that you've written is, is, is fiction. And I think that's awesome. I'm still convinced that there's, there's no better way to teach some of this stuff than through story. And so it's so much more engaging than <laughs> trying to plow through, you know, some theological treatise with all kinds of books you have to, or words you have to go look up. And I think that's why people like Paul Young who wrote The Shack really intrigued me because they managed to, to pile all kinds of really good stuff into a compelling story. And then, so I, I, I love that you've done that there. Was that a, was, was that a departure from what you'd done before or is that sort of part and parcel of what you've done all along?
1: It's interesting because it's a little of both. It's the first full-length fiction I've written. It's similar in some ways to the two previous books. Uh, one is called The Poet and the Fly, which looks at seven poems, not necessarily by Christian poets. Seven poems, each each poet writes about the common house fly. And I go into depth as to what spiritual meaning each of those poets brings out of just meditating on the common housefly. So you get people you'd expect like uh, William Blake, who in his poem, the fly accidentally kills a fly, and that becomes this metaphor for inhumanity. Um, Or you take a Japanese uh, Zen uh, haiku master like uh, Kobayashi Issa, who wrote over 200 haiku about flies. But he has one which uh, for him becomes this this, uh, symbol of compassion, So it's just incredible. And then, of course, really grim, if you want to get to the really dark part of it, is Emily Dickinson's famous poem about I Heard a Fly Buzz When I Died. And for her, it's the complete existential unknown. It's the everything we don't understand that even at our point of death, we still don't understand. I mean, it's a very dark, dark poem. That was actually one of the hardest things I ever had to write because it was when you get into emily dickinson even though she's written some very spiritual things uh, the level of her doubt and the darkness she is able to ex- explain in that dark that doubt is pretty scary she's not not somebody i delve into i'd rather read sartre than emily dickinson <laughs> <laughs> i a lot oh my gosh <laughs> <laughs> so in in that way those books and then the other one was called seeing jesus which sounds like it's going to be a you know a chuck colson loving god kind of thing <laughs> But it's actually subtitled um, uh, Visionary Encounters from the First Century to the Present. And I take a kind of semi-skeptical look at all those people through the centuries, even some of the biblical writers uh, like John at Patmos. What are they really saying with these uh, supposed visions of Jesus? I don't come down deciding which ones I believe and which ones I don't believe. I just kind of present the facts and sometimes bring some poetic or aesthetic meaning out of them. But again, it's in what you're saying before. It's against the idea of having all the answers. It's exploring wonder. It's exploring those gray areas of doubt, those things we don't understand, uh, exploring kind of our own pretensions spiritually. So uh, those two books, I think, really... Are akin to the beautiful madness of Martin Bonham. They just happen to be nonfiction. So, the Poet and the Fly and, and Martin Bonham, I think, are two of the best books I've written.
2: That's awesome. No, I, I, I just, I just again, I'm the, the older I get, the more, the more I'm, I'm intrigued by things I don't know. And I, and I think when you talk about someone like Emily Dickson, Dickinson, I think you can see the like that polarity that sometimes comes with existential, either dread or unknowing, right? where it either leads you down a path of like, oh my God, I don't know anything and that's terrifying or oh my God, I don't know everything. And that's, it's mystifying. There's so much more to find out. And I think you can kind of just, I think you can divert down either path and like lead down a very dark, like, like terrible, terrifying, I don't know anything. And, you know, existential angst. Or maybe for a lot of, like for me, it started that way, honestly. There was quite a bit of existential angst. There was quite a bit of, I did have that dark, night of the soul kind of thing early on in my, you know, when I was beginning to break away from um, evangelical fundamentalism, especially. And it's a little bit like taking that first step off a cliff and going, well, you're sort of walking away from everything you've ever known. And and you've been told your whole life that that's dangerous. Like this is a dangerous path you're about to trod. And so it's a little bit terrifying. It's a little bit exciting. And then, uh, you know, two or five, two or three or four or five years down the road, you realize it's just, this is just life. Like, and to pretend that that you, that you had it all figured out ever before was the was the height of arrogance, anyway. And so, there's so much more to learn when we're when we're open to each other. I I, I like that you mentioned um, you had a friend who was Sufi. John and I have a friend who's Sufi and had him on the podcast. And I don't know a thing about Islam, but but if all I knew about Islam was spending an hour and a half with Sophokos, I could buy that. Like like his his vision of of the world, his view of God as loving and and peaceful and merciful and inclusive and all these things, all these things that I, that the ways that I perceive of God, hey, he loves Jesus like, like I think better or more than a lot of Christians. I know I, I, if, if I was still in my rigid fundamentalist days, we wouldn't have even shared the conversation. I don't think let alone been open to hearing from one another. So I think there's a lot of value to that. Right, John?
0: Well, yeah. And I think your character in the book, um, Dunwoody, is, is the character who has not gone through the dark night of the soul at least not not to the point where i think he has been able to say i don't have all the answers i think you know as the protagonist of, in the in the in the book he's he's definitely someone and you know i admit it offline you know before we recorded i'll admit now that I've, I've read about half so i don't i don't know if there's some kind of finalization with some of these characters but up to what i've read he's someone who is pretty rigid hasn't had that those moments of questioning or doubt that some of us have had at least he's not he's not willing to admit it yeah I, I guess I would say that
1: without giving it away he does develop in the book you'll see
0: I, w- I would think so I mean the, I mean you, you've given him enough of a character that I, I can't imagine that you don't you don't continue with that character so I you know like I said I'm halfway through the book I'm going to probably finish it today actually um, it's it's that it's that well written that i'm you know, I want to go back and pick it up and finish it. Yeah, but is is he is he like the is is he like the character of the person that we've all we've all come up come across right or we've all come up against? Is this person who is so so absolutely sure in his belief that he's not willing to even look at a, another way to see God or the divine? I mean, is that is that is that the character?
1: Yeah, uh, he's a composite. Uh, For instance, including one, two friends of mine who are theologians and language professors. And one day I was talking with them. Uh, They're very academic, very evangelical. And I kind of tongue in cheek said to them, you know, I don't know Aramaic. I don't know Hebrew. I don't know Greek. I don't know the ancient languages at all. So, you know, I, I don't know, you know, if I have any right to really call myself a Christian And I was saying it kind of tongue in cheek. They took it seriously and they said, oh, yeah, you know, I understand what you're talking about. For them, being able to read the scriptures in the original language was, was, you know, such a deep part of their their faith that they could not see, you know, any other way. And I've dealt with other people at Zandarvan and not at Zandarvan who... You know we'll knock on your door and say, "June, you, if you were to die tonight, do you know where you would be tomorrow that kind of thing, or have you seen the four spiritual laws uh, again, the certainty issue so yeah that's that 's a big one uh, it's, it's he 's a composite of a lot of people, and I was having fun with him. <laughs> and I'm just hoping none of the people that he's based on will recognize themselves. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe they should. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> really. Yeah. Uh, uh,
2: they always find out, man. They always find I, out. I,
0: I do like the, the, the back and forth between Bonham and Dunwoody. It's almost juvenile. Yes. <laughs> but at the same time, not, Right. Yeah. Uh, and and um, I don't see, you know, Dunwoody doesn't get called out on it. Bonham does. He, he has yep. friends around him. And again, we're not, we're not privy to some of the information about Dunwoody. And again, I'm not, like I have to say, I'm not done with the book. So maybe some of this comes up. But some of his little, his little ploys, he kind of, uh, uh, Bonham, that is, gets kind of called out. It's like, yeah. hey, I mean, was that really worth it? I mean, <laughs> did you really gain anything by doing that to him? But yeah. I, I really like that that play back and forth it's it seems juvenile but at the same time uh, there's a deep-seated need on one side to be right and the other side to be acknowledged yeah is what i get from it so bottom uh doesn't necessarily want to be right but he wants to be acknowledged but done he wants to be right
1: yeah that's
0: and i like the the back and forth between them and like i said you you brought up a a, a balloon incident, which I think is right where I'm at in the book. And that's, I think one of the things that Bonham gets called out for by one of his friends, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is. Yeah. yeah.
0: I'm not, I'm not going to say any more than that. Cause I, I want people to read the book, but uh, that's one of the things is like, okay, so it, it's really juvenile. Yeah. But at the same time I could see the frustration and you would, you get to that point of like, I'm going to do this. This is, this is how I'm going to get back at the person <laughs> because I don't know how else to do it. And so, um, I keep thinking about this uh, on the back where it says that um, your book is part sitcom, part inspiration. This thoughtful theological comedy is like a Venn diagram in which C.S. Lewis and P.G. Uh, Wodehouse intersect. And I, uh, to be perfectly honest, I don't know a lot about, Is it, did I say that right? P.G. Wodehouse? Is that how you say his Wodehouse, name? Wodehouse, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis, obviously, I'm, I'm a huge fan. I did look up. The other author, just so I could see what kind of, and so I I get, I get where what they're saying there. But the C.S. Lewis part for me is some of the, I don't want to say Narnia esque, but you know, a little bit more light, a little bit more. But at the same time, the apologetics of C.S. Lewis, and Nat and I have talked about this on the podcast. The apologetics of C.S. Lewis were a huge stepping stone for me into my faith moving forward. Um, I don't think. I think a lot of people do stay right there in the apologetics and C.S. Lewis, and then there's there's those of us who move away from it and start reading some of his more um, intellectual stuff. And then, if you want to even move farther, Nat and I've talked about this too. You, if you start reading C.S. Lewis's letters, that's where you really get into the heart of who C.S. Lewis is. And I see that in the in your book specifically with Bonham and I'm sorry. I'm, I'm horrible with names. I barely remember my kids' names.
1: Don uh, Woody or with the Katie West
0: guy? Katie, Katie. Katie I see yeah. that in them. Yeah. Because their their private conversations are, and then again, as the, 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 the field of Theophily comes up, some of these other characters that come in, these are their private moments where they get to actually talk about their idea of God. And that's what I get from C.S. Lewis specifically in his letters. That weren't meant to really maybe be published, but we now have the privy of seeing them, and we start seeing the depth of C.S. C. Lewis. Whereas other people live in this this idea of mere Christianity, right? That's that's the book everyone reads about C.S. Lewis, and that's that's the end of their discussion on C.S. Lewis. But he's much larger than that, and I see that also in your book.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that the evangelicals uh, have claimed C.S. Lewis like they have because I've right. The more I read c s Lewis, the more I realized he 's a very unevangelical kind of guy i don 't agree with everything that he writes. I like you. I went through a huge c s Lewis phase and then kind of moved beyond it into people like merton and and others who were a little beyond uh, where Lewis was. But um, what you said about Dunwoody and Bonham is also to me is also about. You know, growing up in the church as somebody who's interested in the arts and the humanities or even the sciences, you know, in the evangelical church, at least, you know, from when I was in junior high and high school, they did not have a lot of patience or a lot of interest in anybody that was interested in the arts. Uh, number number one, as soon as, uh, you know, as you're a kid in, let's say, in junior high or high school and you're getting interested in the arts, about you know, a third to a half of the people you're going to run into in the community who are interested in the same things are going to be gay. And the church is going to be uh, discouraging you from uh, participating. The church itself is not real keen on the arts. And so Bonham has a little bit of that background. You know, know, he's coming to it from a completely non-theological humanities, language, literature background. And the dialogue that you have with somebody who's in the church that's where Dunwoody and even Katie, to some extent, are with Bonham, because uh, he very much represents that uh, that humanity's way of talking about God, which is different than the theolo- theological way.
2: Yeah, it really is. And you know, and as I think about it, you know, in the in the in the evangelical churches, and let me just preface all this by saying that's just the church tradition I was raised in. So I talk about it more because that's what I know, right? But we were. We were kind of forced at one point to make a decision. You know, hey, you're either going to pursue this, the humanities and the arts and the whatever, or you're going to really get serious about God. And getting yeah. serious about God meant putting away these childish things. Right. Um, to the detriment, I think, of all of our our ability to grasp and, 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 and apprehend, you know, the largeness of the world. John, John was involved in theater from the time he was, what, 13, 14, eight, 15? Eight, eight, about 17. Okay, 17. No, yeah. yeah. You know, we've always played music. I I grew up, John and I, I grew up, my dad and John's dad. Hey, our dad. Our dad. Um, introduced us to books the second we could read. Yeah. So, and we grew up with a library of books to read, you know? Um, and so we've always been immersed in, in all of that. And, but, but I got to a place when I was getting serious about God that, you know, I was, I was encouraged to move this direction. Like, hey, let's, let's put this other stuff, but I, um, so, I like, I like that. I like the tack of moving it back towards, okay, there's other ways to explore loving God, knowing God, everything else, um, outside of this very two dimensional, almost crass theology that, that cuts you off from an entire segment of your brain that is meant to grasp beauty and, and wonder and, and art and music. So, and science for, for that matter. Lord knows we were discouraged from pursuing science because <laughs> at that point if we do that John we might discover the earth isn't actually 6000 years old.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then
2: all the other dominoes start to fall and we become atheists.
0: Son of well, god. And, and for me, you know, cuz and I'm not going to bore our listeners with another yeah, please don't. another biography of me. <laughs> but so I left the church at a very young age. Uh, you know, I was 18 or 19 when I left the church, you know, with a, a foray back into the church in my 40s, but one of, the, one of the first things that happened to me that made me wonder how science didn't affect my belief in God was this moment at a church camp where I saw this uh, meteorite, right? this uh, meteor shower, and it was the most amazing moment I, I can, it's still, I mean, I can visualize the whole thing. I was outside, it was summer, 80 degrees, middle of the night, and this meteorite goes flashing by the trees and lights up the whole sky like it's daylight. Hmm. And I'm like, what a marvelous moment that within my Christian belief now doesn't really give me any kind of connection. I don't know how to connect that to God because it's science. But I really 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 wanted to understand it. So that, you know, that starts my interest in, in astronomy and all that, which again the church doesn't want you to do. And then as we talked offline, you know, music matt and i listen to or a huge musician or musicians listen to tons of music bob dylan and honestly not his christian albums are not i don't find his christian albums to be his most spiritual albums that he's written yeah. Um, yeah. his most spiritual albums one makes makes me connect to any kind of connection to it to a god or the divine are not his I, I think it was a trilogy right that he did of christian albums i know it's at least two by the way, I, there are songs on there I like, but they're the ones that I go to. And again, as Nat and I are being raised within the church, these are things we are told are not of God. There's no way they can be biblical or Christian. or Christian. They do not connect with the divine in any way. And so Nat and I are trying to, Are we have these moments where we get super, super Christian and we get rid of all of this. But then I'm like, w- w- why? If you're talking about connecting to the divine, and with which you talk about in the book, and this whole, this whole idea of theophily of bringing these different professors, bringing us connections to God that are not from theology. And I find almost on a daily basis that that's where I see God. I don't see it in these like super thick theological books that I barely understand. I see it in a U2 song, I see it in a Bob Dylan song. I see it in an E.E. E. Cummings poem. I see it in art. I see it, those are the places where I, I I connect and have the moment that makes me feel like, okay, God does exist. And I feel that's, that's what you're working at here, right?
1: I think your Meteor experience makes me think of that poem by Rumi. It's a short poem in which he says... um Oh, God, you are in the lightning. No, God, you are the lightning, and you are the ah we respond with. That just gives me chills. Um, You are the lightning, and you are the ah we respond with. And that's just, uh, it's kind of beyond understanding, but you know it's true. Yeah. It's it's true.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I was literally just, uh, one even a week ago, we had some crazy storm come through. And there was this moment of lightning and thunder. And it wasn't just me, right? It was me and my dogs. And we're all sitting there. It was quiet. And all of a sudden, there's this boom. And I sat up. My dogs all sat up. And that's that's a moment where you're like, I can explain that by science. And I can be satisfied by that. And I can also explain that by this sheer moment of like, oh, wow. that was that, that's That's extraordinary. And they both are valid. And I think that's I think that's what, uh, specifically within the evangelical church that we miss, is like, they don't want both to be valid. They only want the one that says that God is in control to be valid. The science behind it can't be valid. And, and I find awe in both.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you've, I'm sure you've spoken with scientists. I mean, there, you've read interviews with people like Francis Collins, uh, the uh, DNA guy, the genetics guy, who... Look at their field of study, and they are just it deepens their faith. They don't really understand where God is in all of it, but they know that there's there's just something huge going on there that they can't even explain, but they know it, they love God more because of it. And that's powerful. There's another, I just thinking of Rumi. I had this experience of having to speak at a writer's conference in just after 9-11. And I decided to go on a really weird approach. Throughout my talk, I quoted poetry, but I didn't tell the audience that they were poems by Rumi, Muslim, Sufi. And oh, for one, for instance, one of the poems was, uh, uh, let's see, my soul, let's see, I want to kiss you, God, but I know the price of that kiss is my entire life. And now my soul is running through the marketplace shouting, buy it, buy it. What a bargain. <laughs> the price of that kiss is my entire life. And so I read these poems, little snippets of these poems all through, and I had them guess who, who the poet was. And they were guessing things like, uh, you know, John Donne and other Christian poets. And I said, no, 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 this is, a, this is a Muslim poet. And we don't really have a lot of Christian poets that are writing at that immediate visceral level about how much they love God, just, you know, aren't using the jargon, aren't using the, that are just talking about the raw, the raw emotion of what they're experiencing. We don't, we don't, yeah, I mean, it's sad that the raw emotion we have in the Christian church is sometimes so misspent in, in violence and hatred. I mean, it's, it's really sad, but, uh,
2: yeah, it's very true.
1: Anyway, that kind of went a far afield from your question, but that's that's, yeah. the, that but that's the beauty
2: of it. The field is wide open.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I Yeah, I, but I love that. You're right. There is, um, I don't know if you are aware of uh, a writer named Brian Zond. Um, he's oh, got yes. a, so, yeah. I'm so a
1: writer of one of my friends, but I've not read him. I hate to say it.
2: If you, if you ever have a chance, he wrote a book called Beauty Will Save the World. And this is his point. Like everything that we're talking about is this, that, you know this thing that gets mislaid sometimes by 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 us in our attempts to love god we 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 skip over the beauty part we skip over the wonder part we skip, you know there's and so for him it's art and music and poetry and you know in 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 combination with he doesn't do that to the detriment or to the exclusion of theology but that if you have a theology that's bereft of all of that then you have this very clinical you know and sort of dry and not very life-giving theology that ends, I think ends you, you know, I think lands you in a place of dogmatism and certainty and, you know, it might help you sleep at night on some level, but (laughs) it's very cliche to say, but I'd rather have questions I can't answer than answers that can't be questioned. And so that's one of the other things that that, those other places of of tension for John and I, and, you know, again, speaking for us is being discouraged from asking those questions. Because for many, faith and certainty are so deeply intertwined that doubt is the equivalent of apostasy. You know, you just, how dare you question? Well, I have lots of questions, actually. <laughs> lots of what you've told me doesn't make a lick of sense. So <laughs> let's, uh, you know, the Bible says we should come and you know, let us reason together, right? So let's reason. Let's talk about it. So I think a book like what you've written here does such a good thing for opening up dialogue and and getting us to maybe take a walk outside of our boxes a little bit and see things, we need that perspective change. So I love, I love that you've done that with this book, man.
1: Good, I always think that the term systematic theology is, must be an oxymoron. <laughs> <It does> be. <laughs> <laughs>
2: and what's funny is I've read so much of it. Yeah. I've read so much. I have, I have Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics on my bookshelf and I proudly <laughs> display them having never read all of them because who the hell can? Have you tried? Have you tried to read even one page of that, John? I love Bart. I think Bart's theology. I do is too. Beautiful, I actually. do too. But yeah. trying to read through, just I need Karl Bart for dummies. You know, yeah. because even trying to plow through the first couple of pages it was like, I, I don't know English. I guess because I don't think I understand. I, I don't think I understood a sentence. Um, and so yeah, so I have read. You know, I have, you know, I, I have devoured systematic theology. I've, you know, I've, I've talked to people who are really, really well-respected in their fields. John and I have had Douglas Campbell uh, on the program, who is one of the world's premier Pauling scholars. I mean, and I like that stuff, but I also need him to dumb it down for me a bit. <laughs> well, <laughs> so, I mean,
0: <laughs> going back to C.S. Lewis, right? I mean, I I, I love, I, I've read everything that, I almost everything C.S. Lewis has written. And I have to admit that um, Till We Have Faces and The Abolition of Man are two of the books that I I I, I think we, I talked to uh, our dad, and because he's another huge C.S. Lewis fan, it's like if someone was to ask me to describe the book I just read, I have no idea, I, I couldn't, <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't, not even like I wouldn't even know where to begin to explain it. And I consider myself, I'm not stupid, I'm not like I'm not like I'm
2: not like you know like. <laughs> Go on, raise the bar a little higher, John. I consider myself rather
0: intelligent when it comes to specifically literature and 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 people who write in theology. And those two books for me were just I couldn't explain. Them. I, I I wouldn't be able to explain them. Well, anyway. they're
2: te- they're textbooks.
0: Yeah, and, and but that again, that's that's this idea like th- this is the same guy who wrote Narnia. Right,
2: <laughs> yeah. So he has the capacity to, to to dumb it down for us, and he and does. Gets, right, gets and he point. does.
0: <laughs> and again, uh, like we said, I mean, I'm not I'm not as huge a fan of C.S. Lewis as I was in the beginning of my like re reconnecting to the faith. I guess I I don't know how what else to describe it. Uh, he was the launching point to other people, right? But I what I appreciate in your book and and what you said about doing the poems by Rumi and then not telling me. Correct me if I'm wrong. There's something similar in the book, right? Isn't there? Doesn't Bonham do that with like the words of Jesus at some point?
1: Not sure what you're thinking of, but uh, not sure what you're thinking of, but yeah. So you made that part up, John? I I might
0: have. I thought (laughs) I thought there was a comment where he made some comments about Jesus, and um, they were too liberal for people. I might be mixing it up with somebody else, but I I I could see Bonham doing that. Let's let's just say that.
2: Sure. (laughs) sure. I, I have a feeling. Jesus would be way too liberal for most American churches. Right, right. <laughs> they would be like, excuse me, sir, what's all this socialism you keep talking about?
1: You know, my, my conversion point with C.S. Lewis, I, I loved the Narnia books back when I was uh, first reading them in college graduate school as kind of a young evangelical. And then when I reread them to my daughters years later, I thought, how could I like these? You know, they're, they're sexist. You know, Lucy is never allowed to have a fight, to be in a fight or to carry a weapon uh, because only guys do the fighting. It's it's so medieval and it's kind of battle between darkness and light. And, you know, there's no gray area in between. And I just I just was amazed. I mean, he has... No, I agree. Yeah. I was amazed how much i changed uh, and how much I read Lewis differently at that point. The Narnia books are not my favorite Lewis books. I still... I I still like some of the others, but, uh,
0: his, uh, I think his science fiction trilogy for me is probably my favorite. Um, yes. Um, and I think you know he what? delves a lot deeper into some really deep theological questions that I think he, he also was, that he was also dealing with. Yeah. And, um, that one and, uh, The Great Divorce. I think The Great Divorce, uh-huh.
2: um, still that's, my favorite hands down.
1: That's one of the books that I was thinking of when I did uh, beautiful madness, believe it or not, because it's a novel of ideas uh, rather than a, you know, a, a romance or a genre novel of some kind.
0: But again, it, it, it he leaves enough there that you have to question where he sits. And that's you know, what I really like.
1: I use uh, that hideous strength quite a bit with uh, sometimes when people when I'm talking because they say, you know, you have to be committed to Jesus to really to really understand what's going on but you have that character is it Macduff what's the Scottish character oh yeah yeah um, he is, he's not religious he can't do it but he fights on the side of good he's a fellow traveler but he can never get to the point of committing to any kind of faith because he, he's he's too much of a realist he says I just I can't see it feel it taste it hear it you know it's it's I've got to do it I only I can only deal with reality and Lewis loves him Lewis loves him because he he does the good without, you know, having to have a conversion experience.
0: (laughs) Well, again, it's in, uh, you know, I'm I'm with you, I'm not as huge a fan of Narnia. I've read it a few times, and I think each time I'm like, I'm less and less enamored by it, except the one character who has fought on the side of the, let's just say the dark. But then, Aslan says, that because you did what you did, everything, beca- everything came into being the way it was supposed to. So you, even though you were fighting on the wrong side, you were fighting on the right side. And so that's my, that, that's the, and C.S. Lewis will never come out and say anything about universal reconciliation or anything like that. I think that's the closest thing he's ever come to saying something like, there is hope for all at the end.
2: And well, so, he comes carelessly close in the last battle.
0: Right. And that's that moment. And so for me, that's, that's the moment that I I read the books for that moment. Almost. I read them all to get to that moment. I'm like, okay, there is hope. Uh, But I agree with you. Um, They are rather sexist. You know, we have to put them in his, in his era when he wrote them. I get that. Um, But at the same time, it doesn't mean we can't critique it. And that's, I think, what a lot of people get is like, well, you're you're critiquing it, it with today's um, with today's view. And I'm like, well, that's what we do. I mean, we've done that to Mark Twain, we've done that to uh, we've done that to so many different authors. There's there's nothing wrong with that uh, to acknowledge that they you know they also miss the mark a little bit.
2: But but there's a reason we go back to Tolkien. I do way more often than I would go back to to, to you know. I, I, to uh, I'll, I'll go back to Middle Earth before I go back to Narnia, you know it's it's a it's a much more nuanced um, worldview. It's a, there's a lot more gray in in Tolkien, and Tolkien you know famously sort of <laughs> gave gave Lewis a lot of hell for being you know so so obviously analogous and you know it's like he's not I'm not writing allegory. He's like like Tolkien resisted. Ever referring to his work as, as his allegory, and Lewis like jumped straight in full, you know, both feet. <laughs> but that's what I liked about. That's why, and I, and maybe it was that preconceived notion of everything else I'd read by Lewis that when I did read The Great Divorce, I was blown away by the nuance. I was blown away by his portrayal of people in all kinds of shades of disbelief and unbelief, and and where they and and you know being critical of it in a way, but also being accepting of this is you know. You know, and obviously anybody who considers George MacDonald their their master, you know, and who says that, you know, he influenced everything he ever wrote, must have some sort of leaning towards a a God who was ultimately about reconciliation, restoration, not necessarily about damnation and hellfire. So
1: MacDonald was a universalist, so.
2: Absolutely, yeah. And uh, so for him to inform Lewis's writings as much as he did. You know, I think, I think I'll get the quote wrong, but Lewis is famous for saying that there wasn't a book he wrote that George MacDonald was not a major influence on. So, yeah, anyway, and we could talk about, oh, MacDonald is another one to, to dive into. And of course, I have to, I have to read them in the more modern English because holy, <laughs> there's a lot of, there's a lot of difficulty there. But in, uh, so, 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 hey, I want to, before we forget, I, we were talking offline about, This sort of crossing over of Thomas Merton and Bob Dylan, and I didn't want to let that go without bringing it up because we love Merton and we love Dylan. So, talk to us about that real quick before we.
1: Oh yeah, to me it's a story. Uh, It was funny. I thought uh, the critics, I thought the Dylan critics would trash me for bringing the two together because the Dylan critics, as you know, I've read a lot of them. They are you get the slightest thing wrong. They are hardcore. But yeah. it, was the, it was the Merton critics that hated the book. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, because Merton in 66, uh, the summer of 66, um, had a uh, spondylosis of the spine, and he had to go to the hospital. And he was taken care of by a beautiful young nurse, and he fell in love with her. They corresponded, and then they ended up meeting surreptitiously back and forth. Uh, he would sneak up to uh, Louisville and see her. But during this time, he was, he was really, he was reading a lot of Rilke and talking about loneliness and love and how being alone is the best way of being in love. And it's, it's a very complicated world he lived in. But he really loved this woman, Margie. And at this point, he starts listening to Dylan records in his hermitage, his little hut outside of the monastery. And he becomes a Dylan fanatic. He writes poems, which he asks his agent to see if he can get them to Dylan to set to music. Uh, could he bring Dylan to the uh, to meet him at the monastery, which was never going to happen. But Joan Baez did come because she wanted a blessing for a uh, peace movement that she was organizing at that point. Uh, if you can imagine Joan Baez and Merton getting drunk at the hermitage and talking <laughs> about Dylan.
2: Yeah, it's so can. But
1: Joan Baez at that point <laughs> says... Uh, He's a jerk. I hate him. You know, he leaves everybody he loves behind. This is when he went electric, of course. And uh, John Jacob Niles agrees to write Merton's songs, and they're really awful. I'm sorry to say it. I love John (laughs) Jacob Niles, but he writes these almost operatic settings of Merton's songs. But Merton found huge comfort in Dylan's lyrics. Uh, He even quotes, I mean, he quotes Dylan throughout his journals and his letters at this point. He even has one argument with Margie over the phone. He says that he loves the song just like a woman, and he explains it a little bit, which, when you get down to it, is kind of a misogynist song. Uh, you know, she breaks just like a little girl, and Margie took exception to it. She she could see the misogyny in it, and so they had a little fight on the phone over a Dylan song. And uh, so there are lots of little tidbits like this that just connect together. And then as soon as the relationship finally ends, uh, it's like his relationship with Dylan is over as well. Uh, He had Jacques Maritain come visit the monastery uh, in 66. Dylan sits Jacques Maritain and the entourage around Maritain together. He was, you know, Maritain was one of these major Catholic theologians, probably the the best-known Catholic theologian of the, the time. Dylan sits them all down and has them listen to Bringing It All Back Home, uh, the the album. And if you can imagine, Dylan, uh, Merton says to him, Merton says to Maritain, Dylan is the new Rambeau. He's the new Vion. Uh, and he knew what he was talking about because Merton knew that Maritain was a huge fan of Vion. Maritain, I don't think, bought it because uh, <laughs> he finally says, well, let's... Why don't you read some of your poems, Tom? Let's let's do that. <laughs> but anyway, I find a lot of that fascinating, and uh, I'm interested in that relationship Merton had because it humanizes him so much. But when you read the Catholic critics, their their approach is that Merton was in search of the eternal Sophia. He was in ter- search of the for the eternal feminine, the the Mary in the flesh kind of thing. And I go, no, he was... He was in love was, with a girl, man. She was in, He was in love with this girl that was less than half his age. Yeah. Um, and uh, it, it's really a sad but moving story and funny in spots. but Yeah. And anyway, it's called The Monk's Record Player, uh, okay. published by Erdman's. Uh, oh,
2: that's added to the list, John. Well, it's interesting because we had um, Carolyn Whitney Brown on, I guess, a year over a year and a half ago now, it's been a while. And she was um, very, very good friends with um, Henry Nowen. Oh, wow. And when Nowen passed, um, she was given the task of finishing his final book uh, posthumously. And it wasn't finishing, she wrote his book. I mean, he, he had a, he had taken copious notes. He had, you know, tons and tons of voice recordings. He had this massive amount of information that he could never figure out what to do with. And what it all revolved around was, what makes me think of it is because, as as Merton is sort of enamored and fascinated with Bob Dylan, he becomes enamored and fascinated with a traveling trapeze troupe, and spent the last couple of years of his life following them around in a caravan, wow, and, get, and getting to know them and becoming very very good friends with them, and then writing extensively about these experiences, uh-huh. um, and also that 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 whole concept of this unrequited love, right? Henry no, Henry was never able to. Embraced his sexual identity, but he's sort of on some level falling in love with this image of these beautiful men who do trapeze, and they're just you know these artistic figures. Her book is remarkable. If you ever get a chance to read, I've sat, I sat, I read it in one sitting. It's called uh, Falling, Flying, Catching. Wow! Um, and, fly, flying, falling, catching, flying, falling, catching. Okay, something. Okay. Carolyn Whitney Brown, but she, she had she, um, she she does kind of a, I guess it's it's she takes his words. And then she sort of, uh, she does a, how am I trying to say this, John? Um, she fictionalizes she, she, his right, last things, days. Right, fictionalizes so, his last days as he's, because, um, you know, he died so, in, a, in a. In a hotel. In a hotel.
0: In, in a, like, it's a It's a weird place where he ends up having to be, um, they had to use a crane to get him out. Right, because, oh, because a, there was no, because, because was, the, the hotel was, the stairwell was so weird that they couldn't get a. A, um, they couldn't get a, a journey up to him, so they use like this um, fire engine crane to lower him down. So all of all of that information is fictionalized of what he would have been thinking or might have been thinking as this is happening. But then, in as w- intertwined into that is this story of him, like Nat says, falling in love with this tra- that, this trapeze group, where he he takes his father, I believe. And takes him to the circus,
2: yeah, that was the, it started out. he was in um i want to say Belgium or i think anyway, but his needed something to do, so he took his uh, he took his elderly father to the to the circus, and that was where that that whole thing began was like, oh this I've never seen anything like this. this is amazing, and then wow. come to find out this this is a family of almost gypsy like people who just travel the world and they all live together, and I think they might have been Romanian or something and Anyway, very, 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 very interesting.
0: But the interesting thing is the connection between that, Thomas Merton, and your book, actually, because your book to me there's a
2: real neat parallel there. Of
0: yeah, well, you know, and then your book, this book of this yeah. this idea of um, falling in love with uh, again, I I think. And again, I haven't finished it, so I don't know. Uh, but I think there's 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 this idea of Bonham falling in love with this idea that Christie brings to him. Yeah, you know, it's not it's not romantic in the sense that there's a romance, but it's romantic in the sense that I'm going to fall in love with this idea, and I, I feel like Bonham, Merton, Nowen have all fallen in love with ideas. Yeah. And I, I I really feel like that's uh, that can be a very very moving moment in anybody's life. It's uh, that that connects you to something that makes you feel more connected to the divine. That's way more important in my world than a theological debate.
1: Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. I love speaking of ideas. I love that Oscar Wilde quote in the book where he says. An idea that is not dangerous is not worthy of being an idea at all. <laughs> so I think, it's Amen to that. Kind of what you're getting at. That, yeah, you know, these are big ideas. That change lives. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, if it doesn't challenge you, right? Then, then, yeah. I mean, then that's the point. So that is as good a place as any to uh, to begin to draw this to a close. Yeah, because ideas are dangerous, John. <laughs> you're, you're a dangerous man. But they, I mean, I, I love it. I, I I tend to see that. Um, pretty clearly these days that, you know, people are, are, you know, depending on what side you fall on that, whether danger is exciting or danger is threatening, you know, some people see those, you know, see that as a, as a threat to their, you know, to their level of certainty. Or for some, it's a literally a threat to their livelihood or their way of life. And I'm like, yeah, well, then so be it, you know, because ideas have got to take precedence. But, um uh, we will, um, this book comes out November 14th. Is that correct? That's tomorrow. Yeah. Tomorrow. All right. Yes. Amazing. So by the time you're listening to this, guys, this will be out. You need to have, need to just go buy it, man. Um, we are big supporters. If if it's available in your local bookstore, please go there. Um, if you have to give, you know, Amazon your money, then I guess so be it. But, uh,
1: <laughs> buy bookshop.org. That's a good source. Uh, and there are lots of other non-Amazon sources. Amazon will be carrying it. So Barnes and Noble, but uh, bookshop.org, I recommend.
2: Absolutely. No, we're, we're big local book. John and I, I mean, like I said, we grew up. With books as a passion, I mean that's like that's just always. I still, yeah,
0: I still go to the same uh, little bookstore that I've been going to since I went to uh, was in junior high. It's yeah. still my favorite bookstore. It's a very place.
2: magical place. I love that place. Yeah.
0: and they'll order me anything I need. So, <laughs> I, and I'm willing. I'm willing to wait a couple extra days and and not have to buy from
2: Mister Bezos.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the oh anticipation was God. nice anyway. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, really. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, we'll make sure and link to everything. We'll make yep. sure that uh, we and we we put the word out. I, I thank you so much for, for taking the time and hanging out with us, man. Absolutely.
1: Thank you so much. It was such a joy to talk to you guys. Thank you for listening to This Is Not Church. Be sure to rate and review the podcast on your platform of choice.
2: If you would like to partner with us, visit patreon.com slash thisisnotchurch where you will receive exclusive content such as early access to episodes, videos of upcoming episodes, and live Q&A sessions. Be sure to check out our Facebook group or follow us on Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode.